0: Hello and welcome to IPO Stories, a podcast that explores the tracks to IPOs for companies and their stakeholders. Through interviews with professionals
1: who have led companies to public markets, we will learn about what it takes to IPO a business, the do's and the don'ts before, during, and after the listing process.
0: I'm Gauthier. I'm Per, co-founders of Almondson Investment Management, a Europe-based equity manager. In this episode, we talk with Emmanuel Thomasson, who has been the chief financial officer of Delivery Hero for the last 10 years. In 2017, he listed a company in Germany together with CEO Niklas Östberg in a 1 billion euro IPO. Since then, they have continued leading the charge in food delivery in Europe, Asia, and South America, using the listing as a catalyst to continue acquisitions and hiring. Emmanuel will share with us the experience as a CFO of a high-growth listed tech company, the choice of listing versus staying private at the time, the intrinsic value of structuring the company around the IPO, and the importance of taking care of your physical health in the process. Before we start, we would like to remind our listeners that our discussion is not financial advice, nor an investment recommendation, nor a solicitation to buy or sell any financial instruments, or an offer for financial services or any other transaction. The information contained in the recording has no contractual value and are destined for an informational purpose only. Amundsen Investment Management and the participants in this podcast may have holdings in the companies being discussed.
1: Thank you very much, Emmanuel Thomassin, CFO of Delivery Hero. You're here with us today on the show. Thank you very much for coming here. Maybe I should let you introduce yourself, please.
2: Well, thank you very much, here, and thank you very much for having me today. Well, in a nutshell, yeah, I'm, I'm French by nationality, but I've been living more than 35 years in Germany, so I consider myself a bicultural, at least. I enjoy life in the French way. I love food, I love jokes, I love friends, I love to be entertained. But I think when I work, I really work the German way. So for me, it's like, you know, if you give a date, if you give a timeline, that's, you know, I want to do everything to respect it. For me, it's a very important point.
1: So you think the French don't respect the timeline, is it what you just said? (laughs)
2: No, we're flexible. That's the thing. Like, you know, the Germans are not flexible, but they will respect the timeline. So it's like, the timeline is a timeline. Don't expect me to be delivering two days before. We as the French people, like, if you call me, I said, hey, do you see a possibility to maybe deliver two days before? We will try to find a way, right? So I try to have both, but I'm very German the way I work. I must say, you know, I need an agenda. I need to know what the meeting is all about. I need to know what comes next and everything. Yeah, and I'm living in Germany, in Berlin. And for the last 10 years, I've been the CFO of Delivery Hero, which was like a beautiful adventure. Not a walk in the park, but a beautiful adventure with a lot of learnings.
1: What is the history of Delivery Hero? Please remind us.
2: Yeah, so Delivery Hero was the first platform that we founded. So Delivery Hero is about online food delivery platform. We started at the marketplace in 2010 in Germany. So this is the first opco that we founded. It was in Germany. It was all about marketplace. So very simplistically, listing restaurants on the platform and you connect with customers. And every time a transaction is happening, you just get a commission. So very simple, straightforward. And that was like two thousand and ten. and the company was called Lieferheld. And why I mentioned this is because this is a translation of delivery in German. Liefer meant delivery. And the health manure, so the first name was not Deliverio, but the German name called Health. And then we translate this in English a year after. And the year after, this is where the Deliverio as a holding, if you wish, was
1: created. So we're in 2011 then?
2: 2011. Very early on, you started first to do a contribution in kind of the German business, and then we started to do M&A. So it was really looking at growing extremely fast. Organically, but also like through acquisitions. And that's the starting point, I would say, from the very year. So first focusing on certain European transactions and then very quickly going abroad to become a very international business. But the starting point was really like 2010, 2011 in Berlin, in Germany. And I mentioned this because there was like a kind of, in Germany, there were so many startups at that time. That became very famous. And you could say Oliver Zamber and his brothers uh, had a massive impact on the evolution of the economy here in Berlin, and especially the startup environment.
1: Okay, so then six years after June 2017, the company IPO in Germany, right? Exactly. What was the rationale at the time?
2: Well, the rationale was about the industry itself. So you had like already two companies that were listed. The first one was GrubUp. The second one was TakeAway. So it was like an industry that at that time was considered as a, not a party anymore, but, uh, with a big potential in order to, to access capital fast. One way was like to become listed. And we had the chance that basically the business model was understood. People saw the trajectory of this business. Again, you have to keep in mind it was mainly a marketplace business. I think that's important, you know, also to understand the story after it was a marketplace business, well understood. Takeaway was making a nice profit in Holland. Up uh, was doing the same in the U.S. So it was a, a decision that, you know, now it's a moment where you can have a, a very good traction, where investors understand your story. You don't have to be the first. And we decided to go out, mainly to access proceeds and capital. So that was the decision at that time. It was very successful also.
1: So proceeds for growth, right? Nothing to do with deleveraging.
2: No, it was really proceeds for growth. As I said, we were looking at acquisitions and the idea was like, let's get a proceeds. There would be still some targets to require. And at that time, as we started the IPO process, the so-called on-delivery part of the business was very tiny. And we just, late 15, 16, we started to think like, well, but we're a marketplace business. Should we go more on-delivery? And how big can on-delivery be? And that question is the central question around the IPO, but then also after. Because at IPO, we had a projection about what will be delivered over the next two years, the profitability of the company, which was based mainly on, on the notion to be a marketplace with a little bit of on delivery. Why I mention this is because the marketplace business is a very high profitable business, both on gross profit. I mean, you will have gross profit margin above 90%. And then at some point, if you do a marketplace after five years, you should be profitable. And if you're not, then you have a problem with the operations. So you should look at your at your operations. But when you do on delivery, then you postpone the profitability by a lot. I mean, we have to invest massively. The gross profit margin is by far, you know, we come to a place later on where you do the same profit by order in absolute terms, but the margin is smaller. And you have to put a very complex system in place. And that was not clear to us, to be honest. I mean, like we, we knew, okay, we will have to do some on-delivery, but the proportion of it was like unclear.
1: And before the IPO, if I remember, um, you did a private run with Nasper at the time, just ahead of the IPO. So you always had that option to stay private for longer with your current owners. So why, again, not staying just private for longer? I know for some years it's been, it's been a thematic. Capital was cheap as well. No point to IPO if you're actually supported by your investor base. Yes,
2: you're absolutely right. I mean, like NASPERS came pretty late, actually. It was, you could see them as an anchor investor, but uh, we had like two interactions before. So they were coming to us, looking at the company, and thought that at that time, twice before, that the company valuation was too high. Afterwards, obviously, it would have been better for them to come on board earlier. And they came to find 17, the due diligence was happening, if I'm not mistaken, in March or April. And they came, they invest end of April. And we went IPO in June, which has a very positive impact because they've done such a due diligence. So everyone knew, okay, well, NASPERS getting on board, they will have done a due diligence. And yes, we had a prospectus, so we prepared a prospectus. But in a lot of cases, people considered, look, I mean, it was the largest investment ever done by NASPERS. And they really spent a month to look at every single detail of the company. So it was like not only the financial impact the anchor investors, but also the, the quality of the investors that you were getting on board was very positive for the company. And why did we decide to go public? Looking back at that time, it seemed like, you know, this is a logical thing to do. The company, if you look at the prospectus, has become to be profitable very soon. Let's raise money. Let's have a, a strong balance sheet. And we're on path to become profitable because of the marketplace notion that I mentioned before versus on-delivery. And then, you know, we relax as capita. So it was like logical things to do. Looking back, you could have took a, a different option, quite frankly. Um, knowing what we know now is like, maybe you would have took a different way. But at that time, it really seemed like a logical step to do for all of us, for the shareholders, for the board, and also for the management board of companies. And like, this is the right time. The market is there, the business is understood, uh, the trajectory is understood, and that that was a very successful IPO, as you remember. It was very, very successful, both in, I would say, in the quantity, so like the proceeds and the valuation of the company, but almost most important from my point of view, and it's very funny for a CFO to say that, the quality. So the quality at that time, the quality of the engagement, of the relationship that we had was also like very, very positive.
1: And you say maybe you would have done things differently with uh, a bit more insight today. Uh, yeah. What happened? What do you mean by that?
2: Well, what happened in this industry is that all of a sudden, people understood that you could be extremely profitable with this business. And you can scale it far beyond probably what people imagined at that time. If I take an example of today, if you look at South Korea doing 100 million orders for 52 million habitants, today I mean, you know this is you understand the magnitude of this business and we are far from being finished i mean like we continue to grow in that business so after the ipo people realize like wow this is a massive massive business and this is growing so if you look at certain markets like sweden we're still growing by 30 percent year on year after almost 20 years so it's still like you know it's, it's something that will go on where you have a stable business predictable business and that's not so many And this is a very fundamental need for human beings. So you need to eat. You have very strong cohorts. And all of a sudden, people will ask this. And then funding became even larger. So what we thought was a bigger financing round at that time, like, you know, we've done an IPO of 1.2 billion. All of a sudden, companies that were still private were doing financing round that were beyond what we could have imagined before. So knowing this, I mean, it's easier to say it now, but like one option would have said, okay, we stay private, we raise more money. And in order to continue to uh, consolidate this market and maybe to do some further M&A, we larger ticket. At that time, we thought certain ticket size won't be impossible.
1: But the benefit of the IPO gave you the, the currency to do with that M&A.
2: Exactly, that's right. I mean, so it also gives you the credibility. You have a lot of positive impact, to be quite frank. I mean, like the first one is like in the maturity of the company, To make sure that you're ready to do an IPO. If you do it or not, have a lot of quality. It forced the company to have certain processes in place. It forced the company to have a certain discipline, to be in control. And I think there's a lot of value in that because otherwise a startup can be also like going a little bit soft. Like, you know, if you don't pay attention, certain things that are understand for a lot of CEOs, not so important, but the VAT declaration is not an option. You have to do it. You know, income statement filing is not an option. You have to do it. So certain things you have to, and if the company is not well-structured or disciplined and don't do it, then the company will face unnecessary issues. And that's why, you know, to be IP already have a lot of value and also like protect the company, the assets, the employees, and also the investors. And here I'm thinking about putting control in place so that you avoid fraud. You know, this is also happening. So I think there's a lot of value in that. The second thing for IPO, so to be IPO ready or to do IPO, is that you attract talents that you probably won't attract otherwise. Here I'm thinking about people that are about to become partners or partners in big four companies that have a certain career already, that are 40 and ask themselves, what is my next step? If you're a startup and you're not well-structured or not IPO ready, you will need a lot of arguments to attract these people because they will consider the risk and said, look for my career, do I do these steps or not? Once you IPO or you're on the way to do IPO to be listed, then you become very, very attractive for this uh, kind of profile. And then at the same time, it's gives a lot of credibility to the company, but also a lot of experience. And you really making a big step in terms of maturity.
1: Do you think you need to be profitable as well? Because I remember when you did your IPO, you guided the market that you would be EBITDA break-even two years after the IPO. But at the same time, you were guiding the market that you would grow 20 30%. And what happened, you actually grow 75% per annum, right? It's been, as you said, a, just an amazing growth story. But obviously, profitability has actually been delayed. And you mentioned you've done some investment in delivery, maybe pushing back this break-even point. So again, do you think, being non-profitable is fine for a gross company today, thinking about IPOing or not, and how difficult it is to manage the market in that sense.
2: Yeah, so that's a very good one. I mean, like so if you consider today, it's almost impossible to get listed and not being profitable. Today, in 2022, 2023, I think the valuation will suffer massively if you're not profitable and almost like also free cash flow positive. So these two criteria are very, very important as of today, if you want to get a good valuation. And that, I think that's the reason why you don't see a lot of IPO happening those days. I think there's a lot of good companies, but they don't. I mean, they would consider to go IPO, but they're not there in terms of profitability. and they will suffer from the valuation. Today, I was saying this is almost a must. Not only that you can show and demonstrate your business model and make sure that people understand your trajectory, but you have to be profitable and free cash flow positive. Otherwise, as I said, your proceeds or your valuation will be very, very diminished, and then you should stay private especially if you're really certain about your business model and trajectory. As we put the prospectus together, we've been absolutely certain about the trajectory of the delivery year. And the decision to go on delivery at that time was not an easy one, because first of all, you put this in a prospectus, you know, the investors are people that, that we trust, that we like, that they trust us. And that to taking the decision was not an easy one. You postpone, as you said, profitability. At the same time, if we would have not take this decision, which was a real difficult one, I mean, we have long, long debates and consideration, then I think we will have been in a very, very difficult situation today. Once I was saying to a CFO, a very senior CFO of the group, is like, you cannot not do delivery. You know, we love marketplace because as a CFO, you're profitable and it makes your life much easier, but you cannot not do it. If you don't do it, someone else will do it and will disrupt you. So it was really postponing the profitability. But I think at the end, from the long term, I think it was the right decision, even if it's very painful. But to come back to your question, today to do an IPO, I think you have to be profitable or very, very close to. And, and when I say that, it's like you really have to say, look, in the next one or two quarters, the trajectory is so clear that we're going to be profitable and we're going to be breaking cash flow positive very soon. You should not depend on the financial market.
1: You should not depend on the financial market. But actually, are you also taking advantage of the financial market? Because if we look at, at your share price and your market capitalization, it's been up and down and sometimes really high up, right? With a lot of value put in the business. You as a CFO, do you see it as a signal that, okay, maybe it's time to actually use a capital market, raise equity? I know you've been quite active in convertible bonds as well, in the bond market as well. So you've actually have been pretty smart and agile around using capital markets. So being listed, does it actually offer you more opportunities from that sense? And are you taking advantage of that you know, volatility and valuation the market gives you? So I won't say
2: we take advantage of the volatility because in a lot of cases, you're not in control of that. That your share price is dropping by 70%. I think it was not only the case for Delivery Europe. And I mean, anyone that will tell you I was expecting this to happen <laughs> early 2022, I will have difficulties to believe him. I think no one was expecting such a drop so quickly and such a different mood. I mean, I've seen this 99 too fund with their first internet bubble, but I thought that we're better than that. I thought that we're more rational, more educated than what happened in 99 too fund. And I was not expecting such a drop. So I don't think we took advantage in that sense from the share price. But yes, you're right. I mean, as a as a CFO, I think it's always important to see optionality in terms of how to finance the company and to secure the growth that we were looking at. I mean, the strategy of the company was still looking at ways to consolidate the markets where we're in and consolidating by selling or by buying. So we need to have this flexibility. And if you remember, like, you know, a big part of the financing was to finance the, the acquisition in Korea uh, Woowa, by five b I mean almost five billion US dollar acquisition, which was in my sense the best acquisitions, M&A acquisitions in this industry so far. Not only because of the value and also the profitability that we generate then, but also by the competency that, that we acquire from you know, the learning and also the giver, the group like the projection like this is Korea is the thing that every single market has to reach. So in many ways, this financing was, I think, a very good one, or the financing that we've done was a very good one because we, we were able to acquire a in South Korea.
1: And you paid in shares partially, right? The M&A. So I guess the, the seller was really... 50%. Well, exactly. was really keen to also get equity exposure, right?
2: Exactly. So we've done we look at optionalities of financing and in that sense you can say we are agile and we're looking at all financial possibilities to to secure the financing of the company but to bet on the share price would be a very dangerous game to do. You know the last two years have proven it that you can really miscalculate yourself.
1: Back to this volatility of the share price, how employees because you mentioned being listed the benefit is hiring good talent as well. But how are employees typically reacting to such volatility? And do you do a bit of education? It's not like share price is down 70%, we're going bankrupt. Recently listed IPOs had this issue to manage employees and reassure everyone. How did you address that?
2: We've done educations, So we explain, you know, how the mechanisms is, but there is also obviously nervousity. especially, I would say, now we talk with a very old person, but like for the young generation. When you've done through the first crisis and like when you have the impression there's only one direction and it's always up, right? You don't understand why all of a sudden the financial market is changing dramatically. The benefit of you know 30 years of experience is like, yeah, I've seen this already twice or three times. So it's like, don't panic. Continue to deliver on what we promises, focus on the KPIs of the company. And then the share price will come back. And that's, I think, is what we have to do in, in terms of education. It's not the first time. This is happening in the economy in general. And the market recover. It's a question of time. But at the moment, I mean, the, the direction is not positive. What's become a little bit difficult is when, I would say, we have, a, I think, the average age of our employees is around 35. And in the compensation package that you offer, you have a fixed remuneration, but then you have also like the stock option on the long-term incentive program. And when you start a family, you you need financing. And that's become a struggle when you you were expecting to do some profit on that. So you have to educate yourself, say, look, this is a snapshot today the share prices. But if you continue to deliver on the premises that we said to the market, then it's fair to expect the stock price to recover. But you have a lot of education and communication to be done. And sometimes you will lose people, to be quite frank. I mean, people will say, look, I mean, I need to get more, fix or
1: visibility,
2: visibility, and despite the education that you might do, it might be not enough.
1: And now looking at your investor base, so public investors, how has the shareholder base changed or evolved the investors you've been meeting since 2017? So in 2016, you were doing probably around 300 million euro revenues. Now you do 9 billion. So we're talking about a factor of 30 times, right? It's amazing. Are there the same shareholders or the same type of investors looking at you and that you're interacting with? How has it changed?
2: I must say, we have a very stable, like the top 20 and top 30 are very, very stable shareholders and people that I know since that time. I really have to think about if we lost maybe one or two shareholders on the way, but in general, we kept the same shareholders all along. They know the story from the very beginning. They know us from the very beginning. It's a tough time for them, right? Right now, I mean, like for the last two years, I understand that, you know, this is not what they were hoping for themselves. But I think when you know this business, you have a very stable investor base because the main asset of this company, which I mentioned before, the cohorts, is not in the balance sheet. But this is the real power of this business. This is the main KPIs of this business. When you acquire or when you do an m transaction, that's probably the most crucial aspects that we will look at. Is like how strong are the cohorts or how weak are the cohorts and what can we do about it? And when investors understand this and understand the notion of compound economy, which Einstein said this is one of the huitième merveille du monde. So like, you know, this is the compound economy. Compounding is something very, very difficult for human being to understand, to appreciate, but this is exactly the business we are in. So if you look at the cohorts and the compound economy, even if sometimes it's difficult to Again, for the human brain to understand it, like what could be the company, if you can continue like this over years, this is, you know, what you mentioned before, your company will be 10 times, 20 times larger. For the human being, it's extremely difficult to understand it or to, to visualize it. You know, even if you, if you put this in Excel, it's like, it's impossible. Something must be wrong with my formula.
1: But this is the reason why you will talk to gross investors who are probably more set up for this compounding. I mean, there's a debate US versus European or German versus European investors. Not everyone has the same brain in a way and how you function, how you look at growth, how you value growth versus maybe profitability as well, right?
2: Absolutely. And that was, this is very interesting that you mentioned this. I mentioned at the beginning, you know, I'm half French, half German. I studied in Germany and I can see the reaction of the German investors. And I say, yes, exactly. I've been educated that way, like, you know, like, like the German gap. And I love it. I love it so much because I think it's so clear, so strict. And then I'm not a FIS fan, to be honest. So it's like, it's strange to say that, but like, you know, I would be like Hagebe is what I feel secure and home, but that's limiting. That's limiting in terms of understand over time that this Hagebe thinking limits you in your investments because it's a very short term view. You have to be profitable or you don't fulfill, you know, what is according to Hagebe and all the education that you have is not fulfilling what a good company should be. What the Americans, the U.K., I mean, investors in the U.K. or even more the Americans, they understand this notion of compound economy, which I never felt in Europe, especially, to be quite frank, in Germany. And I saw the difference. I mean, the difference was like when you're on Rocho and you do two weeks of Rocho and you start in Frankfurt and you end up in New York or San Francisco, the feedback that you can get is so massively different. I mean, like if you do like Frankfurt, Paris, London, New York, San Francisco, Toronto. The questions and the view on your numbers is differing so massively. Today's like, hey, you have to be profitable and cash flow positive. But looking before 2021, the feedback that you could get was so massively different. Yeah, there's, there's no right or wrong. It's just in Europe, we might miss the opportunity because of that. We must miss the opportunity because of that. And it's difficult. I mean, it's going against your belief almost like, you know, so what you learn, It's not an easy step to do, but the Americans are more, I would say, obviously I simplify a lot, but I would think the Americans get it faster than what we get in, in the European one.
1: But being not present in the U.S., right, didn't prevent you from onboarding U.S. investors at the time of the IPO?
2: No, no. I mean, like also before, that's a very good point because we had already U.S. investors in the cap table since to find 13, 14, you know, like funds that are very solid, very well known. So we knew, OK, we are known in New York, in, in the US, and we were considering about IPO. We're like, OK, debating, obviously, do we go to the US or do we stay in Europe as a listing? And if staying in, in Europe, do we go to London or Frankfurt? As we talked to the banks or to our advisors, they said, look, I mean, in terms of valuation, you won't have a higher valuation and the liquidity will be there. And that was the case. I mean, we were 11 times oversubscribed it was not the question of we will get a higher valuation or more proceeds to be in the U.S. At, in Europe at that time. Today, it would probably be a different start in terms of valuation of the company compared to the U.S. peers. At that time, it didn't make any difference.
1: And what do you think today would be different? It's just that the market is just higher in the U.S. right now for, uh, for delivery or marketplaces in general?
2: Yeah, I mean, looking at the valuation of peers, should be, it's got a higher valuation multiples for the valuation. The question would be, and that, I don't have any answer, to be quite frank. Is like, okay, if we would be listed in the U.S., but not present in the U.S., we will get the same multiple as the peers. Or do you have to be not only listed, but also have a presence, be visible in the U.S. market? Personally, I think being listed in the U.S., but not present and not visible as a service brand, I think you will still be penalized in terms of valuation. I might be wrong, but I think if you're not present in the U.S., being listed doesn't bring you so much value.
1: Yeah, that's a very important question, and there's a debate. But because I know you invest yourself a lot in private companies, and probably a lot of those founders think about listing in the U.S. versus you know Europe. And I think you know, question is, do you really have to be in the U.S. to get the same valuation, or not? If valuation is your primary goal. And having a U.S. presence probably helped to connect with investors, as you say, and not be competing with the 3,000 other companies in the NASDAQ. But at the same time, it's also making sure investors understand your business model, as you say. Do you have this compounding mindset, this growth mindset, right? And seems to me we're getting there in Europe. And obviously, companies like you helping that, I think, investor knowledge and experience and benchmark of growth companies, not necessarily profitable. Is that your advice to those companies or private owners that, you know, consider the Europe as a listing location? Do you have a strong view on, on that?
2: I believe that we have a lot of
1: talents in Europe
2: and we might be a little bit shy or sometimes like, you know, not enough or certain about our talents. So the fact that we were listed in Europe was also like a kind of, kind of been an ex- I just say model if I may say so I want to be uh, humble here uh, you know one of the company to look guys this is possible to be listed in Europe and to have a good IPO and then to support the startup scene here in, in Berlin in Germany in Europe and making sure that you know we, we're not too shy yeah, we can be successful we have good people here we have great intelligence we just have to be a little bit more bullish and more a bit more vocal about our talents so I think a part of it was like also this way right so it's like your CEO Niklas is, is Swedish um, and French. German. We funded a company in Germany. Why should we go to the US if we get the same valuation and the same proceeds? Let's prove that a a European success is possible. I talked to, uh, obviously, I have some connection with startups here in Berlin, but also in France and other places in Europe. And when they ask, should we be listed in the US? I always ask, like, do you have a presence in the US? And if not, it's like, well, but what would be your advantage? I mean, do you have If you look at your peers of your industry, is it a massive difference in terms of multiple? And then if there is, then ask yourself if this is because of the presence in the US or not. Because if you're not, if this is the key, then you will have to decide for yourself, are you going to go to the US and what will be the implication for your business? Because being listed in the US have also implications in terms of obviously in my fields of reporting, how you report. But not only, I mean, like you have also like some legal implication, it had some certain complexity and so on and so forth. So it's something that has to be thought through quite wisely, I would say, because you have consequences on other operations, on the management structure and so on and so forth.
1: On the IPO readiness, you mentioned already a few um, tips. What's your best recommendation for CFOs? And again, with this six years experience as a public company, what do you think is super important to get really done well before being public? Well, I put 10 points to
2: myself. I prepared a presentation and I have 10 points. My first one is really like get talent soon enough because there's a tendency and I understand that as a startup to postpone the recruitment of talents. Like, oh, this person will be too expensive, he's too senior. And you postpone it and you end up doing a lot of things. You end up doing, at the beginning, employment contract, intercompany loan. You do the reporting, you do the budget, everything. But you don't do it right. I mean, like right in the sense like, you know, you do too much things. And sometimes there are two junior people. But once you recruit experienced, talented people, and here my example is like a head of tax. Out of the sudden, this field is covered. Then you know you don't have to worry about the VAT declaration and income statement, and you, you do it on passant, let's say. And then of the sudden, this is giving you a lot of confidence, and also is free a lot of energy. So I had the tendency, and I think all startups will do that, to postpone the recruitment of experience slash more expensive people but once you do it it's boosting your organization so the mistake i made like the first one i always presented is like i was always getting experts too late because i was postponing this moment in time oh you know we've just done the financing maybe i can keep a little bit of money for other things and to and i think that was one of the things i learned the second point was like about aip solution if your business is growing fast we implement an ERP solution quite early at Delibrio. It was a very, very early stage to find 16. It was already too late because you know, the business is growing so fast. You really have to be, it was not too late in the sense it didn't jeopardize the business. But to catch up with your growth, it's extremely complicated. And you rely on solid financing or finance numbers. You rely on robust solutions. So I would say like, don't wait too long to consider an ARP solution. And that would be probably the the two areas that I would think about. And then, you know, considering IPO, I would have all the advices like, think IPO as an event, just an event for the finance teams. It's just an event. You don't achieve anything. You were private before, you public after. It's just an event because the danger is that if you see this as the ultimate goal, then after that, you will fall. And especially for the finance team, usually the IPO is happening. And then you have to report the next quarter. So you have to be, physically, you go back to work the day after. And I was really concerned about you fall after the IPO. I was continually saying, this is just an event. In the trajectory, and the chronology of the company, it would be one point since June 17, but the lives continue afterwards. And I've done a lot of communication to my teams. Consider this as an event, nothing more.
1: That is a really good advice. I think sometimes people see it more as a destination or as a goal too much. And then the risk is you lose people after that, obviously, because they work for that and suddenly demotivated. And maybe also too much focus from the organization, the owners, the stakeholders, to make sure the IPO is obviously a big success, but valuation at the top. And then the risk is you probably just disappoint, right? And um, you reach the peak.
2: And you know what you said just before is like, there were some investors asking me what would be a good IPO. Obviously the proceeds and everything, but like a good IPO for me would say like, after a year, I will have the same team. No divorce, no depression, no suicide. I didn't lose anyone. We stick together. And this is six to seven months of very intense work. You're really under pressure, timeline and everything. And you have to act as a team. An IPO is not a one-off. It is not a one-person success. It's a we. And you really need to have these people on board before, during the IPO, and after. And I, I've been lucky. I mean, I literally, for two years after, I didn't lose anyone. And you feel it. I mean, a lot of the sudden, you know, like everything is becoming more, every challenge that you face afterwards, like, okay, we did this together. We continue to do it together. We will manage this situation as well. No worries. I mean, like we stick together and that's a big importance. So I think uh, communication before doing uh, preparation for the IPO, making sure that IPO is just an event, I think is really crucial.
1: Would you help you again if you had the choice today?
2: I mean, for delivery year or in general, I mean, like for delivery year, looking back and knowing what we know today, I think probably we will have to think towards about, you know, let's stay private. We will accelerate even more. The consolidation we will be more aggressive with people that understand the trajectory and probably we will have been faster in certain areas as of today. So that probably like knowing what we do today, probably I would recommend to delay a bit. But still wanted to be IPO ready. That was the you know that was also the goal. If we wanted to be IPO ready and then push the buttons anytime. So the IPO readiness, I would have not changed anything. I would say, look 2.5, fifteen, sixteen, It was exactly the right thing to do. Going IPO in seventeen. That's, that's another question. But be IPO ready, have the discipline to report on quarterly and so on and so forth. I will keep this. And then if I will do another IPO, yeah, I will do it anytime because this is this is such a nice. The preparation, it brings teams together. It forge a team that is, once you've done this together and you put this structure in place and you put things in place and you document and you realize that you have some weaknesses and you have to fix it and you fix it together and certain challenges that bring you such a value. So, and then obviously when you go listed and if you're successful, then obviously this is a big reward. But I will do it again. Yes, I like to do it again one day.
1: I guess the toughest question is when to start this IEPO readiness work, right? Because as you say, it's good to have that opportunity for the event and be ready, get the teams ready and done and organized. But so start early, as you said, right? But what does it mean starting early? And and when should I do that? And you've done it as well. You kind of push back some of those investment or people you probably should have hired earlier as well. And I guess that's a tough question for CEOs and CFOs out there, when to start investing for having this IPO readiness.
2: But there are small things that you can do very early on that doesn't cost you a lot. At the beginning in terms of cost you a lot not in financial terms but in run of efforts or resources and actually I would argue that if you do it early enough you save a lot of time a lot of resources in the future so it, I mean some business are investing privately I said look do you, if I transition now why should I do it because I have nothing to my translation will be easy. Said, yeah, exactly that reason. <laughs> the, the sooner you do this EFRS translation, the easier it will be in the future because you've done it. And right now, you probably have very few things to change. But as the company will grow and getting more complex, then you will have this EFRS transition done. If you do it in the future, you will realize that oh, I need two years, and it will cost me a transition cost you three hundred to five hundred thousand euros probably with auditors, depending on the size of the company. So it takes a lot of resources. Why don't you start so late? I mean. Especially if this is an easy task, do it now. Then you can say to your investors that you've done already this EFR, EFRS transition, and you also like, build the knowledge internally. Like, what does it mean? What do you have to do for this? And it doesn't require a lot of time or a lot of money. So that's one of the points. So, like, why do we wait as a startup? There's no reason for this.
1: We're coming to an end soon. Can to get the final tips you will have had or give for CFO or CEO or senior executive looking to IPO?
2: Well, the very personal one is don't underestimate the energy that will be required from you. And when I mentioned this, it's like I've done at the very beginning, it gave me a lot of certainty. I thought like, you know, the French were like a good mind in a healthy body. And I thought like I have to take care of my body and my soul. And I was really taking care of no alcohol, no coffee. I fasted for two weeks during the IPO, making sure that I'm in good shape. Because this is a very intense time, which requires a lot of energy, physical, but also brain. You don't sleep a lot. You know, when you receive the analyst report, you have 48 hours to correct everything. So it's like sleepless night uh, a lot. So you have to be healthy. And if I will help a company to do IPO, not as a CFO, but like as a, I will make sure that I do a health check before. Like guys, you're on a journey that will be demanding. So make sure that you do good health. Take it seriously. Because if you fell in the middle, will be for the company, for the investors, for your employees, for your colleagues, and for yourself. It will be really a disaster. So make sure that you're in good health and take this seriously. That would be my advice.
1: I think that's a really good one because, you know, there's an advisor for everything in an IPO process. So many advisors around management and shareholders, financial, obviously, but others and legal and tax. But I haven't heard about the health advisor, but I think that's a really good idea. Any fun facts you could share about your IPO roadshow, if you remember any?
2: Yeah, there's one of those. The very really first day, we're in New York uh, with Nicholas together, and there's a car waiting for us, like, you know, for the road trip. And then the car is picking us up, and we run on time. There's no stress whatsoever. We leave the hotel, turn to this avenue, I don't remember which one. And then there's a traffic jam, and we don't move, and we don't move. And hey, we have plenty of time, we have plenty of time. And at some point, I start to say, Look, I mean, like, you know, we, we stock for quite some time, right? And the drivers, no, 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 we have plenty of time. No, don't worry, don't worry. Naturally, it happened that it was in the same block, the same building on the other side. The guys were not telling us like we could have walked. We were stressing in the car while we could have walked two minutes to get to this. And then I realized, like okay, but now I want to see which address it is. And we walked a lot in New York afterwards. So that was like a very funny thing because we started the roadshow with a stress, a peak of stress. like We're not going to make it on time. And then maybe the last one was like, once I was so tired, I will confess you something. We were at the end of the roadshow And I really pay attention. I really love investors. To be honest, I love to be on Rocha. I love to talk to them, to hear their opinions, to hear their feedback, um, concerns, things that they disagree because I learned about this. Well, I'm thankful because I always take something for me and for the company. But it was a Friday and doing this one-on-one Nicholas talk and I was not capturing anything. I was just dead. I was just completely tired.
1: You felt guilty apparently.
2: Oh, yes. I mean, I was like, oh my God, I didn't pick anything because I was so tired. It was like, I was exhausted.
1: Did you get that investor in the book at the end?
2: Yes, because Niklas did fantastic. That was, we're a team. I mean, like, you know, this is what a team is all about. It's like, you had also this moment, right? So, I mean, we're humans. This is what I mentioned before with your health and uh, making sure that you measure your energy because at some point you always have a, a moment where you're tired. Yeah. And then this is where the good team is. You know, then your colleagues will take over.
1: And kudos to that, guys, because I think among all those IPOs we've seen in the last 10 years, having such longevity with a CEO and a CFO, you guys are doing a great duo, and it's amazing to see you there still after the IPO. So well done. Thank you. Thank you, Emmanuel, for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you. Thanks for your time.
2: Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you, Gautier. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to IPO Stories. In future episodes, we will host CEOs, CFOs, advisors, and other participants in the IPO process to learn from their experience, like from Emmanuel today. If you like the show, please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share the show with people around you. If you have questions about the IPO process that you'd like us to address with future guests, please get in touch at contact.ipostories.com. If you're interested in our views on the IPO process in general, please follow us on LinkedIn on Amundsen Investment Management.